0: Oh, yes. <laughs> are dismissed to nursery and to classes and all kinds of good things.
1: Uh, speak to you, uh, speak and to study and walk through together uh, through God's Word regarding uh, the attribute, the character of God in regards to His omnipotence. Let, let's Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this family camp. What a wonderful time it is to retreat away from the world, from the busyness of our everyday lives, uh, from our jobs, um, the mundane things of cooking and cleaning our our homes, to come together for a concentrated time of, of fellowship and of teaching and of just enjoying your wonderful creation and with one another. So we ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit during this time to open our hearts as we read your word, uh, be with me, Lord, as I um, share it with your people, and that together we might see the magnificent glory and wonder of who you are through your power, and particularly, O oh Lord, that power in our lives. Bless us this morning, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, If you would uh, open your word with me, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 139. Before I read, I wanted to just say how appreciative I am of of Pastor Muller. I really identify with you when you gave the remarks during your talk about how you're reading through your systematic theology or some of these these topical uh, studies of the attributes of God and... You just read paragraph after paragraph, Latin phrase after Latin phrase, you know, references to philosophers and theologians, and not one Bible verse. You know, during that time, and maybe even it's probably happened to me too, where it's going line by line over, and at the end, this is what we do not believe, and I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> but uh, but I identify with identify with with you in the sense that. Um, I am not... You know, the Lord's humbled me to where I, I'm not as smart as I think I am. And so sometimes the very technical, precise, uh, point-by-point, philosophical um, definitions of of God, very specific parts of who God is and how God works, uh, I, it's hard for me to process, and, and so I don't think that way, at least not, not the way that I, I used to. And so I... Um, uh, decided to take a more exegetical, expositional route to, to look at a passage and say, see, see what this passage says about who God is. And, uh, and so that's why we're, we're going to Psalm 139. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them with my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way... Everlasting. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, when I was in seminary, I I have to confess that my, you know, I I like to say that I'm sanctified and holy, and I studied at seminary for, you know, so I could be a, a better minister to the God's people and to to minister to people who are are hurting and needy, to to learn to preach better uh, the gospel so that people might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But deep, deep down in my heart of hearts, the prideful sinner that I am, um, studied those theology books, took those tests, wrote those lecture notes for the A. And And it wasn't always an A either, and I... Would pull out my hair, and and I, it was an an existential crisis during that time where, you know, it's like two in the morning. I'm studying and I'm writing my paper and it's due like at eight o'clock, you know, in the morning in the in in the professor's mailbox. And I'm thinking, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I studying God's word for an A? You know, to get the top grade. You know, to know all the facts that I need to know to pass this test. And the Lord really humbled me. He really worked in my heart to where you know, seminary is to know me. All that you're doing is to know me. And through and and as you know me, you know, I was thinking in my mind as as. as as I'm studying God's word, to know him, is then I can go and share him, right? How can you share someone you don't really know? Um, and so over the years, I've really, you know, tried my best to learn everything with this great goal in mind. And I remember meeting Taylor uh, and finding out that she is a, a graduate of of Covenant College, and I remember we were talking about, you know, the relationship of of doctrine and into the Christian life, and she would say uh, one of her favorite professors, William Denison. Some of you know him, and he would, she would tell me how how he would just bang on his desk and and just very animatedly jump around. Doctrine is life. Doctrine is life. And and I and I it really resonated with me, and I was like. Yeah, that's right. It is right doctrine. If you don't have good, strong, solid doctrine, you know the house—the house of your life—that's built on on sand is going to fall. But if you build it on strong, solid rock foundation of the doctrine of, of the Scriptures and all that God teaches, and your life is firm, it's strong. And um, and I, I would only add to that the 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 idea that doctrine is for life and a very particular kind of life a life of doxology a life of worship a life of knowing god for his glory and and so paul the apostle paul says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all to the glory of god and and i really love uh, how Alistair beggs says it you know in his if you listen to truth for life radio program he says you know, part of the, the radio jingle is where the learning is for living. And, and that's the approach that I take. And so as we go on here in Psalm 139, I was tasked with, with the, uh, the teaching on God's omnipotence. And omnipotence, you know, taking the, the word omni and potence. Omni being all, potence being Power. And so what I'd like for you to consider this morning is uh, that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, almighty. He can do all things according to his nature, his character, his will, who he is. And it's great to know that he can do you know, He can do all of these wonderful things far away. He's you know, made the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, the earth, everyone. And that's great. It's wonderful, and it's, it's what we should know about God. But Matthew Henry, in his uh, comments on this psalm, says, It's one thing to know that God has made everything, but it's even better. It's even more beautiful to know that God has made you. And that is the, the goal of really why God revealed to us his omnipotence. It's not just to know that as a fact, but to know how it relates to you in your life. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So here, as we look at a section of Psalm 139, particularly verse 13 to 16, I'd like for us to consider how God's omnipotence in creating us and reflecting upon God's creation of us and how that opens the door for us to see God's uh, work, omnipotence in creation in general and his works, in creation, providence, and redemption, that all of that is for our lives. That it is an awe-inspiring, life-changing truth that ought to lead us to a life of worship, to know that God can do all things, and we cannot. And so we're completely, utterly dependent upon Him. But first, I'd like for us to look at the, the psalmist's reflection on how God made us to praise Him. Um, commentators and, and expositors divide Psalm one thirty nine into four major parts. In the first part of God's omniscience, verse one through six, and we looked at that uh, last night. And then verse seven to twelve, God's omnipresence. And I am thankful for Jonathan Marsh um, teaching some from from this section. When he first read it, I, I thought, man, oh, yeah, it's like oh, that's my psalm. Like, oh, I hope he doesn't steal all my thunder. And he didn't. I mean, he didn't. And not that I have thunder, but um, but that it's like, yes, omnipresence there. Yeah, the infinity of God in, in terms of location. Okay. All right. Because um, I was thinking what he could have done as well is applied uh, God's infinity to his knowledge. And that this is omnipres- omniscience, infinity to his power, and it's omnipotence. So... Um, I promise I wouldn't get into that stuff. Okay, sorry about that. God's omnipotence, particularly, as, as this reflects on His omniscience and omnipresence, His, his omnipotence in, in relationship to, his, to the psalmist's self, to His creation, and how that opens the door, and that's what we're going to look at, verse 13 to 16. And then God's holiness, right? How all of those, and as, as Pastor Muller said, all the interpenetrating, perichoretic, Uh, attributes of God, not being parts, but all being one together at the same, all concentrating itself on God's holiness, and how God himself applies his omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence to see sin and to slay that sin, to judge that sin, and to point us to to the way of everlasting. So, if we look at particularly how God made us to praise him, we see that throughout Scripture, whenever God's power is described or it's talked about, it is always, almost, always described in terms of his power to create. Right? That's why Genesis 1-1 is there. Right. If you, if you want God to know exactly what, you, what, he, what he wants you to know about him, in the beginning, what did God do? God created. In the, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He made the universe. And whenever God wants to vindicate or or exemplify his omnipotence, right? The Lord God Almighty. Right? The Lord God Almighty. It is always in relationship to his title as the maker of heaven and earth. Right? That if he is, if he makes the universe, then he owns the universe. He rules the universe. And if he could speak the world into existence, if he could make it all in six days by the word of his power, it is the epitome of what his power is. God's omnipotence is such that there is an absolute power that God is because he's God. He can do whatever he wants in accordance to the nature that he is goodness, holiness, justice, and truth. And God can't and he won't do things that go against his nature. That's why, you know, whenever you get those questions uh, from a skeptic or maybe a, a cynic and say, you know, can, can God make a rock bigger than himself that he can't carry? You know, and <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, you know, maybe some people don't answer, ask the question that way, but that's how I hear it. So, um, but, but God creates in accordance with his nature and his attributes. He creates everything good. But here's the interesting thing. that Of all the permutations of what God can do, we only see what God has done in, in creation, in the scripture. And that what God continues to do in our lives and into the future and into eternity are all based upon what God has previously done. So God... God probably won't make a a a rock bigger than himself that he can't carry because he didn't. (laughs) You know, that's why God the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children so that we may do his law. So it, it doesn't really help to speculate what God could do when we have what God has done. And um and here here's where omnipotence really is very important for us is that whenever we hear of God's omnipotence, it is in many places given to us as a source of comfort. I can't tell you how many times I've visited you know, young families you know, with small children, and one of the young parents has just been diagnosed with cancer, with lymphoma. And you just you visit, you knock on the door, you go in, and you just see their face... And it's almost as if all hope is gone. Uh, that, that they're wondering, w- what are we going to do, pastor? Um, I, we, you know, we have t- a two-, three-year-old child. Um, and, and just that big word, C just means, you know, almost feels like a death sentence. What do, what do you as a Christian, what do you as a pastor say to those families to comfort them? and and my go-to psalm the psalm that gives me the most comfort psalm 121 right? what makes god's what makes god's comfort and help real comfort and help for a christian in those times right why does the psalmist in 121 look to god for help as he looks up into the hills what makes god such a comforting source of help listen to what he says I lift my eyes unto the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And then what? The maker of heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of the Lord, Psalm 124.8. The maker of heaven and earth. That the power of God in his creation and what he has done in making the whole universe demonstrates this omnipotent power that even our finite minds cannot comprehend. There are billions and billions and trillions and trillions of stars in the universe. God hung each and every single one of them, one by one, and he's named them. That there are multiple galaxies... Uh, when I think about the stars that we see, you know, some of the astronomers tell us that most likely many of the stars that we see burned out millions and millions of years ago. And so it is the the fact that God made the universe demonstrates his omnipotent power. And so that's the source of help. And I hope that that will be a source of help and, and comfort to you. And when I read that psalm and encouraged my, that young family from Psalm 121, you could see the, the hope flood right back into their hearts, flood right back into their, their lives because the God who made them, the God who made them out of nothing, who spoke the, word into, spoke the world into being by his word and his power can help them, heal them, strengthen them, give them uh, work, work in their lives and that there is hope. And then the God who gave him life can raise him from the dead, even if the cancer kills them. So there's hope there. And it's grounded in that power of God to make heaven and earth. And so God made us and formed all of our inward parts. Look at verse 13. For you formed me. It, it, the word there is created, shaped, made, my inward parts. And literally he's talking about the bowels, the kidneys here, the seat of of our personhood uh, in the in the Hebrew worldview, and then you knitted me together in my mother's womb. And here, I love how the the, the illustration here of a potter just forming and making uh, clay. And, and I'm, I'm glad that God made me, and not Pastor Muller. <laughs> uh, he made me, um, and and you know, and shaped me from the dust of the ground. And you could even experience you could even think about the, 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 the wonderful intimacy of God's special creation of you and me uh, where the, the language in Genesis there is, is that he shaped us out of the dust made us formed us you know with an anthropomorphic language and breathed the breath of life into us and we became living beings or um, and the and I think the the ladies will 'll we'll 'll we'll appreciate this illustration where where he knits our, our our bodies together, cell by cell, tissue to tissue, finally weaving and knitting everything in our mother 's room from the point of conception. I remember uh, we went to to the um, the Huntington Museum and there was a uh, there was an exhibition of, of King Louis, I think it was the 15th or, or, or 16th, of his tapestries. And these tapestries probably span this, this whole wall, I mean, this whole stage area. And if you, you can see from a distance, it really looks like a painting. And you look closer into it, and the, the knitting is so intricate. You could, you can, I think you can see facial expressions because it's so finely knit and woven. And that's what God does with you and me in making us and forming us in our mother's womb. How amazing is that? One of the most amazing, awe-inspiring things that I have ever experienced is looking at my daughter's ultrasound. How many of you have uh, still have your, your ultrasound? And maybe, how many of you have, have still have your, your child's ultrasound, maybe framed it and... And, uh, and looked at it. We still have ours. We haven't framed it. It's still on the, on the uh, you know, we, we had it on our refrigerator for a long time. And, but, but, and then when I, you know, was a bio, bio major, it, I was in absolute awe watching the, the fertilized egg begin to divide one cell into billions and billions clumps and cells and tissue and fully fledged organs and hands and feet, eyes, mouth, nose, a head. The the seemingly infinitesimal cascade of cellular tissue division, differentiation. The brain that the child, you see the heart beating. And I remember seeing my daughter's ultrasound for the first time and just tears running down my eyes. Praising the Lord, thanking God that he's making her wonderful and beautiful. Beautiful. It is literally the closest thing to the miracle, the miracle of life that we could not experience uh, in Genesis 1, right? When God made everything and it just happened. But the closest thing we have is there our, our daughter was before, uh, before she didn't exist and then the sperm and the egg came together and then there she was. And then, and then nine months later, you see this beautiful beautiful baby, face to face, crying, and, and you're crying too, and you know, and why is that? It's because God's omnipotent power demonstrated in the creation of our own children is amazing. You can't describe it. You just see it there, and you just praise the Lord. Um, let me just add this one story here. Um, I used to uh, work at a crisis pregnancy center when I pastored in, in Orlando. And my job was to counsel the, the men who would come in with, with the women who were considering having abortions. And what the director used to tell me was, 90% of the time, the young ladies who want to abort their, their children do so at the pressure of their boyfriends or their husbands or the significant other. They'll, it's usually the, the guy who, who's pushing the, the, the girl, you know, have your abortion, have your abortion, because I can't take care of the baby. And so if I could could coax and persuade the young man to, to change his mind, then he, maybe he'll change her mind, or maybe he'll take the pressure off and they'll decide to have the baby. And it was heartbreaking to work with these couples and, and work with the the hard-hearted young men and they walk out the door and you're wondering, are they going to go have an abortion? And, my, and I just remember staying up late at night. And then, he, and then there were the victories where the, the boyfriend's like, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's not going to be as bad as I thought it was. And, and so you, they walk out the door and you're like, yes, they're going to have the baby. But it was more often than not a question mark and most likely having the abortion but, but there was a change, right? I, I call this the, the post, the pre-ultrasound machine and post-ultrasound machine. We'd counsel these couples, and, and the, the guy is like, oh, I'm not sure or whatever. And then we would invite them to an ultrasound at the same clinic, and they would have the ultrasound, and you look at that small baby being formed in the mother's womb, and, and then you see the tears running down. The, the men's eyes. And then later on asking them, are you going to have your... Do you, would you, are you can still considering having the abortion? And they're, they're drying the tears in their eyes. No way. No way. And there was no argument that I could have ever given better than to actually see the miracle of life there and the omnipotent power of God working. So it ought to inspire awe and wonder. And that's what we see in verse 14, if you look look at it with me. I, will, I praise you, for I am fearfully, right, awe-inspiringly, amazingly, right, uh, wonderfully made. And when we consider that the almighty, omnipotent God, who made the heavens and the earth, the billions and billions of stars and suns and moons in the vast expanse of the galaxies, Who made all the species of the earth that we have still yet to account for, from the least to the greatest, from every single neuronal synapse and firing within our brain? He made you and me in His very own image. There is an elegance to His creation. And God does all of that for each and every one of you. And so the Lord calls us to praise Him. That there's a, a certain mystery. There's a certain mystery to the very fact that we are alive. I know that the scientists try to explain it in their way, and I, I, I like the way that that uh, Pastor uh, Pontier talked about. You know, time plus or was it time plus um, stuff. You know, equals us. Um, and there is a, a divine mystery there to the, the fact that we are alive, that of all the planets and all the universe, this one is exactly fit for life and human life in general. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I worked, uh, I used to work in, in, at Harvard Medical School, and, and the, the professors at the highest levels of science. They have a public face, right? They have a public face, but if you ask them in the back of their lab in a private, you know, more personal conversation, asking them what they'll usually tell you, you know, when the cameras are off and nobody else, you know, maybe their peers aren't listening, they'll tell you. It's amazing how, how our bodies are made. Only God knows what he was doing when he did it. And and these are self-professed atheists or agnostics. Um, So when we contemplate God's work in creating us, it moves us to consider all of God's works in order for us to know him. That as we consider all that God has done, he, he does them, he demonstrates them, he manifests them so that we might know him. And so after creating God's work, uh, working in us, the psalmist expands his vision of God's power so that he can think about everything else. Right? So he considers the wonder, not only of himself, but all of God's works. Look at the rest of verse 14, wonderful are your works. Now, it's possible here that the psalmist is is actually looking at thing, at his own hand and saying, you know, you, you made me, and wonderful are your works; for my soul knows them very well. But it's also possible, and I think this is um, th- this is possible, where he's looking at his his body, he's looking at himself, he's looking at the creation of other people, and uh, and this is what we call synecdoche, where where the parts describe are used to describe the whole. Uh, it, it kind of like how, how I was saying you know, that God knows our rising and our sitting down, that it, it, it's the synecdoche, synecdoche that describes the whole of our lives. And, and so what I think the psalmist is doing here, David is doing here, is wonderful are your works, looking at himself, but at the same time it is the synecdoche to describe all that God has done in the universe and in the world. And he's saying, I know them very well because I am one of them. That that I am an integral piece and part of the sum total of God's work and power in the universe. Have you thought about that in your life? That we've always thought about God's omnipotent power to do all of these other things. And the last thing on on your, your, your brain is, you know what? God's omnipotent power made me how wonderful and how amazing God is. And then it becomes the launching point, the staging area for us to understand everything else about God's works. That is why throughout the whole of Scripture that God's power in, in creation and in providence and particularly his power and work in redemption is described in the language of creation. His work of new creation is described in the language of the first creation. Uh, And and so this is why, you know, to have a a good, solid doctrine of of creation helps us to really have a better understanding of, of redemption. That it is the language and the grammar for us to understand everything else that God does. All of God's other works. You know, I remember... Uh, the moment that I f- felt the confirmation that God wanted me to go into ministry was when I was auditing a class at, at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and I was auditing um, Dr. Greg Beale, He's an OP minister now, up teaching at Westminster, Philadelphia, <laughs> teaching the New Test. He's teaching New Testament theology, and I was just auditing it. and And let me just make a, a shameful plug here. Uh, we, we, we recently invited him, and he accepted. He'll be coming to, to, to preach at our Reformation service, um, and he'll be preaching on, on the Word of God. And, you know, what better topic is there to, to, to preach on for the Reformation? But it was his very last class before he would go on to Wheaton and then Philadelphia. And so it was packed, standing room only, And he began to unpack the scriptures like no one had ever done before. I I felt like I had never really studied the scriptures until he started to open it up. He showed how the Bible had this one overarching story of redemption from creation. And it's how it sets the stage for his new creation, his work of redemption and glorification. And all of it done as a work of new creation, that God's redemption was a part of God's new creation and how the gospel is the remaking and renewal of the first creation through the power of Christ's gospel of new creation. That the old is passing away and the new has come. And Jesus came to redeem us from this fallen first creation, fallen corrupted in sin, and then he took upon himself our sins and bore our punishment and wrath that we all deserved, and he died on the cross. That that delineated the epic of the first and the new creation. The old is past, the new is come. That it was a judgment, as Peter says, like that of the flood where the old first creation was gone and the new world a new creation came and it was like a baptism when we go through that judgment of the flood waters of god's judgment in christ who died in our place bearing our wrath and our our penalty and our punishment we are baptized in him we die and he rise. we rise with him And if anyone, Paul says, and here's the language, you begin to see how you have to understand creation in order to understand the new creation, is if anyone is in Christ, right? Christ, the ark of God, in whom we take refuge through the floodwaters, that when God judged the entire world for their sin, the only safety in all the universe was in this ark, in Christ. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation, The old has passed, the new has come. And so we're baptized into him, we're crucified with him, we are died and buried with him, and after three days we have risen with him to newness of life, be regenerated, reborn, newly born, given that new life, being new created, if you will. And so we catch a glimpse into the new birth in the language of our first birth. The new life of God's new creation in us, if you will, in the gospel womb of our faith union with Christ. And so we appreciate God's work of creation in order to understand rightly and appreciate God's work of new creation in the gospel. And this is, a, this is why I love to read the gospel stories where Jesus demonstrates his power who he is as the Messiah, who he is as the Son of God, at precisely those times where he exercises his power over creation. When he heals the sick, the lame, the blind, the dumb, the deaf, the unclean, all of those miracles are a manipulation and a a supernatural inbreaking of God's power in creation. And if you think about it, all the things that Jesus did are works in which he is reforming, reknitting our bodies to the way that they were supposed to be. That is the primary definition, if you will, of that word, soter. Right? Salvation, it is a bringing restoration back to health. It is that physician language that he was sick, Jesus came, healed him, and he's healthy. Salvation. He healed the blind man in John, John 9, and he said, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but, and the reason why Jesus heals him of his blindness, is that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so when he made the lame walk and the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and the lepers to be cleansed, and he even raised the dead to life, what was he doing? He was displaying the works of God through them. And this is the power of God that God wants us to know very well from the depths of who we are, because we have experienced that life-transforming power. Wonderful are all your works. And if we know his works better, then we know the one who did them better. And so we consider how God plans our lives so we can trust him. And the psalmist is applying what he knows about God and looking at at how it affects him and how it applies to him. And this is always the key to understanding any particular doctrine or truth. That, That God gives us these doctrines not for its own sake, but for, for it to really change our lives. You know, when I, when I interned uh, under Terry Johnson uh, at the Independent Presbyterian Church, and I know some of you will say, you know, that's a, a misnomer. How, how can a Presbyterian church be independent? And that's another story. But, but I interned under him, and, and we would have these wonderful long conversations. And, he, and one of the things that I walked away with, uh, and it was this nugget of truth, was that Terry would always say, you know, preaching is all about the so what, right? So what if Jesus died on the cross? So what if, if we can save ourselves, if we can't save ourselves? What if, so what if, if G- Jesus really rose from the grave, right? That's the, pre- that's the difference between lecturing and preaching, is when you answer that so what in any given question, in any given text. You haven't really conveyed the truth of something until you've conveyed the importance of it, the reason for it, the consequences of it, the so what of it, if you will. And so the question is that, so what if God made me to praise him? So what if God made me in order to know his works through them? And we answer that question. So what... Because God wants us to praise him, to trust him, to adore him, to rely upon him. And so this means that he knows us because he made us. And that's what we looked at last night. Look look at verse 15 with me. This is my frame, literally my disposition, my character, who I am. My frame was not hidden when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The one who makes us knows us like the potter knows his clay, like the architect knows his building, like the engineer knows his work. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses, our abilities, our insecurities, our gifts and our faults. And because he knows us out of his omniscience and omnipotence, he planned everything out in our lives according to his goodness and his wisdom for his glory. Look at verse 16. He says, "You saw my, you, your eyes saw my unformed substance. He saw what we are going to be. He saw our potential based on who we were and who we are and who he wants us to be. And then look at what he does in the rest of that verse. In your book, right? What's, what book is he talking about? The book of life, the story of the, the whole universe, what's going to happen, what happened in the past, present, and future from all eternity. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. See how it all comes together, that all that God knows in his omniscience, he he applies through his omnipotence, and he wrote our story in his book of life from before the foundation of the world, that he, in our unformed substance, when he was knitting us and making us, He knew exactly what our life was going to be with its ups and downs, with its mountains and its valleys, with its shadows and with its joys. And He ordained all our days to come to pass for His his glory and our good. And here, brothers and sisters, this is why we can trust Him with every aspect of our lives. He knows you so well. He made you. He knows everything about you inside and out. And he has ordered all your days. And he asks you, he calls you, He commands you to trust him. Trust me because I know what's good for you. I know my plans that I have for you. You know, um, I remember coming across, coming across uh, parents who, who have children with really, really, Strong um, peanut allergies. That if they even if somebody even peels a peanut in the same room, right? If if somebody peels a peanut in that corner and their children is in that corner, they'll they'll have an allergic reaction. And if they if they even touch anything with a, a peanut, they might go into anaphylactic shock and, and maybe even die. And so these parents uh, have to be very vigilant. They plan every single meal. They look at every single piece of food because it's life and death for their children. Uh, this can't have any peanuts. It can't have anything that was made with, uh, in the, on the same machinery with peanuts. And so the child, the child, the child has to trust mom and dad, right? Uh, and to, so whatever they eat, they trust mom and dad to give them the food and then they eat it and they won't die. They, that, that they know what's good for them and what's bad for them and so they can enjoy and there's a, a sense of, of freedom there's a sense of, of release when, when they've trusted mom and dad and they can just eat and be like I'm not going to die because there's no peanuts in this in, in the same way God does that in our lives he knows you he formed you he knows you inside and out and he's written your name in the book of life and your story is already done He's been vigilant, and he's planned everything out so that all the things that happen in your life happen for such a reason that you will, that's good for you and not bad, that tends towards your life and not towards your destruction. He knows what's good and bad. He knows what's right and wrong, and he plans it all out. And he wants you and me to trust him, to trust him with everything because of that omniscience, and omnipotence in our lives. Do you do you trust him with every single aspect of your life? Uh, here's one way to think about whether you're really trusting him in, in any particular area: is what? Are, what's the area of your life that keeps you up at night? That you're worried about. You're wondering, oh, am I going to be able to make uh, the bill payment? You know, am I? Am, are my children? Going to walk with the Lord when they grow up, or are they going to turn away like some of the other kids have? But, you know, I I love hearing the story about um, Jana Crumb's wedding recently. Uh, I heard it from Barbara that there was a video. There was a video that 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 David had made with Jana sitting on on his lap, and and I, and this is the way that it was told to me that. That Dave asked Jana, like, what's your name? And telling him, talk, talking to her about her name. And, and how Jana's like, oh, mommy calls me princess. And I love, I love that. And this was when she was three. And Jana, however old she is now, 20-some years ago, whatever. And, and then Dave, Dave trusting the Lord, knowing God's plan for himself and for Jana. And then saying how we're praying for, for you to to meet a godly man, to grow up and know the Lord. And on her wedding day, God answering all those prayers to where she she met and, and married such a godly man who would take care of her all the days of their lives, trusting in the Lord. And that was when she was three and to see all that come to fruition, that God answered those prayers on her wedding day. Uh, I wonder if we if we as believers have that same kind of foresight in every area of our life, that whatever we ask the Lord for according to his plan, we pray for them and we know that God is going to answer them, that all we have to do is wait, trusting the Lord for that day when he answers that prayer. That is God's omnipotence being worked out in the very particulars of your life, my life, day in and day out. That's why when, when Jesus tells his disciples not to worry, that the, that, that the way that God comforts them is he's saying, you know, God has numbered every single hair on your head. That not even one hair will fall without his divine permission that is how much in control god is over your life and so whenever you're worried if you're ever worried or thinking about it just go back to god's omnipotence in your life in the past god has been good to me when has god not been good god is good to me now he numbers the hair on my head not even one will fall and and for some of us it's more than others but but he knows them. He counts them. He lets them fall. And so why would you not trust him with tomorrow, with that that, that bill that you're worried about, uh, with your children walking with the Lord? Um, and for pastors, you know, for pastors we have so many worries that even us, we have to preach this to ourselves, that God is omnipotent. He knows it all. And I have to trust him with people's lives. You know, I... I'm not omnipotent, and I think in in that way, we all, that's how we really fall into sin and worry and anxiety, not trusting God, because we want to be omnipotent. We want to be in control, and we have to remember that God is omnipotent. He's in control, and I'm not, and therefore, I have no other choice but to trust him. Who else has the words of life? Who else numbers the hairs on my head? Who else can count them and, and who else gives my hair permission to fall? And this then points us to this divine paradox that we, we see in Scripture. The divine paradox that, that God can do all of these amazing supernatural works of power and creation and providence and the miracles that he performed uh, when Jesus walked the earth. But the greatest revelation of his power is in the power when he saved us in sending us Jesus, his one and only Son. The Son of God, God the Son, became man. He was formed and knit, fearfully and wonderfully made in his mother's womb, and yet he was still God. Two natures, one person. That he was the fulfillment not only of all of history, but the fulfillment of all of creation. That in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son in his omnipotent power constrained himself, emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking upon himself the form of a servant to serve and not to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. To do what the Father had ordained him to do, and to do it as a a weak and humble and frail man living in our place, doing what we could not and would not do righteously and perfectly, and dying as the powerless man, the impotent man on the cross, bearing our sin and our guilt and our shame. And after three days, rising again from the dead. You see, the omnipotent Son of God became our impotent, Savior, our powerless Savior. That he who made the heavens and the earth by the word of his power was taunted as he was bloodied, beaten, tortured, nailed to a cross, suffering uh, unspeakable pain. If you are the Son of God, why don't you come down and save yourself? He saved others. He cannot save himself. That the divine paradox of the gospel and of its, of its power is that God made the greatest of his power, his omnipotence known to us in the weakness and the foolishness of the cross. That Paul, knowing this divine power that is so much greater than anything else that he could have encountered in all of the universe and of creation, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and to salvation. And even in his own weakness, he knew the omnipotent power of God. That when he asked the Lord to take the, the thorn from his side, God said, no. my What did he say? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, my omnipotent power, my almighty power, My world-making, word-speaking,
0: life-changing, dead-raising power is made perfect in your weakness. That's the amazingness of God's omnipotence. Jesus died on the cross for us, powerless for you and me. And yet that's the power that we live with as Christians. Whatever you feel like you're weak and you can't do anything, your life, you just can't do anything. Look at Jesus on the cross and see his power for you. It was my sins that nailed him there. It was my shame that nailed him there. And his omnipotent power was nothing so that he could die for you and me. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that in your weakest times you are the most powerful person in the world? Because God's power is being made perfect in your weakness. When you are weak, then you are strong, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the omnipotent power, not only in creation, but in your new creation,
1: in your gospel. Lord, forgive, forgive me for, for my weakness. But Lord, I thank you that it is precisely in our weakness that Jesus died to make us strong. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.